Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Hope your weekend is going well. A lot going on. Uh, let's first talk about protests today in D.C. Rage against the war machine. I wasn't there because I'm in California, but um, I caught some of the speakers and uh, I thought what I heard was pretty inspiring. Um, voices on the left and right. I think mostly on the left from what I heard. Coming together, uh, talking about, you know, that certainly there are major differences between people who identify on the right and left, but, uh, war is a uniting force and that we can all recognize that war threatens everybody. And so thus, there's a certain power in, in setting aside our differences and coming together to challenge war. And that's what I saw on display today in DC. And it looked like there was a pretty good turnout and, um, it was a good sight to see, and uh, perhaps it will be the start of more. Uh, meanwhile, there's another uh, gathering uh, going on in Munich at the Munich Security Conference, and this is from Politico. Um, it talks about how Munich feels nervous. That was in the headline of this political article. But then it says, and David Sachs pointed this out, the only people smiling at this year's security conference are the defense contractors, which is, I think, um, a very apt thing to report because, yes, this war is a disaster. It's not going as well for Ukraine as we're told in the U.S. media, but it is going great for defense contractors who can always profit off of the weapons that are being increasingly shipped over to Ukraine. And I was hoping to see some major media journalists question U.S. officials about Seymour Hersh's report that the Nord Stream pipeline was blown up. But of course, that did not happen uh, because the U.S. media has ignored this story like the plague. Uh, and uh, it will be very interesting, though, to see what happens if ever that wall of silence is broken and some of the principles of the Biden administration can be questioned about this. And of course, I'm sure they'll deny it. But I'm very curious to see how they did, how they deny it. If they issue, for example, a non-denial denial by refusing to give a direct answer, that will be interesting to me. Uh, meanwhile, this week I published an article in Real Clear Investigations about the Durham investigation. Uh, that's the inquiry into the origins of uh, RussiaGate. And uh, the New York Times recently had this long effort, this long-winded effort that got a lot of attention, basically saying that Durham has come up empty. And I found that curious just on the surface because Durham hasn't released his findings yet. And so how can you dismiss his investigation if he hasn't even released his report? And funnily enough, that New York Times article prompted another article in the, in the Times by Neil Katyal, who's a former acting solicitor general under Obama. And Neil Katyal argued that based on what was in the Times article, that Durham's report should perhaps not even be released to the public. And that is so funny because how can you, again, call for this report not to be released to the public if you don't know what's in it. And it's all the more uh, ironic to say that, given that people like Neil Katyal, back when the Mueller report was going to come out, were demanding that the full Mueller report be released. And they said that, you know, the special counsel rules require this. Now Neil Katyal is saying, actually, the rules say you don't have to release it. And I think the reason why the Times is trying to uh, cast doubt on Durham and why people like Neil Katyal are trying to demand it not be released is because Durham is looking at the origins of a very damaging scam. 
and he's unearthed some significant information about that scam. And I think there's more to come. Uh, and if you didn't think there was anything damning to come out, then you shouldn't have a problem with it being released and let the public to decide. But I think these people know that actually Durham might have something here, or at least might have more damning facts to, to, to release. And that's why I think they're trying to get out ahead of it and trying to build momentum for his report to be kept from the public. So what I try to do in my article is just show what the Times got wrong, how they engaged in the typical kind of Russiagate malpractice in omitting and distorting the available information. And uh, I will link to that article in this show. Um, and meanwhile, let me just comment on Syria, and then we'll open it up to calls. But Israel has responded to the earthquake in Syria by bombing. Uh, just, just as we're speaking, a few hours ago, Israel bombed Damascus, hit a residential building, killed at least five people, probably more, wounded many others, um, all civilians. And that's Israel's response to the earthquake in Syria. It's just incomprehensible, the inhumanity that Syria has faced from the world, especially the so-called uh, Western world. And uh, this bombing by Israel is one of hundreds by Israel over the years. And it's just amazing to me how this country, which went through a 10-year dirty war, then lived under the horror of sanctions, now faces this earthquake. And even after an earthquake, there's still no relenting in the warfare campaign against it. It's almost unimaginable. So I just wanted to throw that out there. It's very maddening and upsetting. And I'll try to do more on that soon. Um, okay, let's get to some calls. This was a short rant this week uh, because I am trying to finish my book about how Russiagate led to the Ukraine war. And uh, it's getting there, but it means I have less rant in my system right now. So let's take some calls and I welcome as many of you who want to jump in the queue as are interested. Okay. Uh, Brent, go ahead. Hi, Aaron. Hi there. So um, let me be very clear. I am, I'm, I'm not pretending that um, the expansion of NATO, uh, the neo-Nazis, the breaking of the mental cords, the coup, uh, the U.S. back coup of the Ukrainian government, the North Stream Pump, I'm not pretending those things don't exist because that's all dirty corruption and that's absolutely terrible that the United States is funding Ukraine billions of dollars while I, while I see people in Southern California living in tents all over Los Angeles. It's, it's absolutely awful. So I'm going to put that out. So I'm not pretending anything, but I want to say, I want to uh, ask you, Aaron, you made it very clear to me that despite all of that, Russia was not justified to invade Ukraine and that the Russian invasion was illegal and criminal. So my question in, in relation to the war against the Rage Against the War Machine rally, does invading Ukraine, does Russia invading Ukraine, is that an anti-war position? What do you mean is Russia invading Ukraine an anti-war position? If someone believes that Russia was justified to invade Ukraine, is that an anti-war position? Is, well, is, is that... It means, they're, it means they think Russia had justified reasons to invade war, but they could still oppose the U.S. policy of feeling a proxy war rather than pursuing peace. So is it a is it a universally anti-war position? No, because it means they support the Russian war. But is it an anti-proxy war position? Yes, it is, because they're calling for... Well, that is, but Aaron, that, look, that Brent, distinction Brent, was Brent, not Brent, made. Brent, Brent. Okay, look, look, look. 
we, we have this discussion every single week, I feel like. I feel, I feel like you ask this question a lot. And that's fine, but I, I can only answer it so many times. Um, I think if some, you know, yes, if somebody supports Russia's invasion of Ukraine, then yes, then they will have to say, I'm not universally anti-war. Uh, in this case, I'm pro-war because they feel that Russia had no other choice. Um, but uh, so, so what's your point? So I feel that some of the speakers at the Rich Against the War Machine rally are not anti-war. And the reason why... Is- and what I've, okay, I got you, I got you. And what I've told you before is they, I think, have, given that they're Americans and it's their government that is waging a proxy war in Ukraine and did a lot to provoke this war, even if they support the war that Russia is waging, they have the right to speak out against their own government. And yes... Can they call themselves universally anti-war? No, no, they can't uh, because they support this particular war by Russia. But I do think they have every right to speak at a rally that is criticizing their own government's actions because ultimately Americans can influence and aren't responsible for the actions of Russia. They're responsible for their own government and their own government played a major role in fueling this war to begin with. And so they have a right to speak about it. That's that. That's my position on that. Right, but... Um... You 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 can speak about other countries' wars. To, like if if you're going to speak about other country the war, then you should be able to have a position about Russia as well. Even if even if you're not responsible. I got you. And I heard I got you. And I heard people today. Like I heard you know I didn't catch all the speeches, but I heard David Swanson say, you know we oppose Russia's war and Russia out of Ukraine. So you have people there who share the position that you do, which is that they see the U.S. provocations, but they also don't support Russia's decision. And uh, I'm not going to call for canceling someone just because they think Russia had no other choice. To me, that's a very debatable position. I don't share it, but I think it's debatable. I think Russia was put in a very, very bad position. And I'm not going to call for not allowing someone to speak at this rally uh, just because they think Russia had no other choice. I think that's a debatable position. I think it's not something I want to cancel someone over. Uh, And thank you for the call. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yo, Aaron. Hi there. Hey, man. Let's just call the men. Um, yeah, dude. Uh, more so, I want to speak about. Uh, you know, we know Israel did their little thing with uh Syria, and uh, you know, attacked uh Syria there during the midst of a damn uh after the midst of an earthquake and everything, hit them with airstrikes. But one of my things is, uh, what do you feel is going to come about with the uh? UN uh, Security Council there as far as Russia taking the, um, you know, the uh, grievances there of the uh, Nord Stream 2 that see her more, uh, see more, see more hers. Do you think, do you think anything will come of that? And do you think also Putin will probably speak on that? Uh, I know he's addressing the uh, Russian Federation there on the uh, 21st or whatnot. And to me, I think that may be a big, uh, Maybe a big, big, a big uh, story there as far as him reporting there on the twenty first and you know things of that nature there, especially with it coming out that the uh, U.S. were in fact the ones that uh, yeah hit the Nord Stream too. So I was just trying to get your opinion on that, see what you think, maybe if that would be a big development or whatnot going forward, and if uh, Putin would possibly declare an all-out offensive there on NATO and everyone else. I got you. Well, I, I don't think Putin's going to declare an offensive on NATO. I don't think he wants that. I don't think NATO wants that. 
Uh, some people in NATO want that. Some people in Russia might want that, but I don't think Putin wants that. Um, and in terms of uh, the UN Security Council and Russia taking up Nord Stream, yeah, that will be interesting, uh, of course. But the UN Security Council, you know, it's always paralysis because the U.S. has a veto, and so they're never going to allow anything. Like, let's say there was an effort by Russia to condemn the U.S. for bombing Nord Stream. The U.S. would just veto it, and I'm sure they'd get some people to go along. But, um, yeah, p- on Tuesday... Biden and Putin are speaking on the same day. That will be very, very interesting. And um, uh, beyond, you know, I, I can't predict anything more than that. Okay, definitely. Other than that, uh, another question I have for you, man, is because, you know, I, I follow you, your reporting, not just you, but a lot of independent reporters. But, man, how the hell do you guys stay so positive, man, when, like, because I'm not sure, you know, I've called in a few times. I'm letting you know, like, you know, I was one of the guys, like, oh, yeah, I don't think Germany would send tanks, man. Like, you know, like, that's just too far. Yeah. You know, you were kind of telling me, like, oh, don't be so hopeful, you know? And, like, it's just like, how the hell do you guys stay so, like, you know, like, positive that things will be okay, man, when, like, you know, we're on the edge of, you know, nuclear war and everything. And, like, just, like, all the people in fucking power just has, like, no fucking common sense, dude. Like, no, no pulling yeah. back, no self-reflection, man. But, like, I, I, I respect you and you report you, dude, because you, you keep it very grounded. And, uh, you know, you don't. <laughs> but I'm just like, man, I, I like, appreciate that. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, I, I just try to remember that nothing that I'm covering has anything to do with me. And there's only, there's, the stuff is not within my control. I can only impact what I can control in my own, in my own little life. And, um, that's how I stay grounded. And, you know, certain things are just going to happen the way they are. And all we can do is do our best with what we have. You know, that's, right. that's how I try to approach things. Hey, no, man, and keep it up, dude, and keep it going, man. You know, like I said, I read up on uh, you guys, uh, not just you, Max Blumenthal, um, the whole nine, you know, uh, Rhea Kalek, um, the whole nine, dude. But uh, you guys have definitely expanded my thinking, you know, and I definitely try to stay positive, but it's just like, <laughs> when I don't know, man, like the fucking leaders. It's and, hard. I hear you. I, yeah, I hear you. It's, it's, it's hard. I, I appreciate it, Matt. Thank you. Uh, Sam. Hey, Aaron. Uh, hope you're Hey there. All right. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was saying I hope your Sunday's going well. Um, oh, yeah, I I, uh, I literally got a message from my family there about the bombing, and I it took me a while to check the news. The only one I found that reported on it at the time was the uh, what do you call it, the Israeli network, the I twenty four news. Yeah. And they've changed the story from well. The, you know, at first it said Israel didn't acknowledge it. Then, of course, it was an Iranian target. It was an art school, dude. I mean, literally, it was uh, an art school. They bombed. Yeah. Um, and then they changed it to, well, they were bombing something else. And what had happened is uh, the Syrian air defense uh, missile malfunctioned. And then that is what hit the residential building. It's like I love that you can change it three, four different times before you find something that works. And, of course, any coverage of it is tepid of, oh, well, they bombed Iranian targets in Damascus. And I just right. think, like, how, how is that okay? I mean, suppose these are our allies, and in the entire time, Israel has never bombed an ISIS position. They've never bombed an al-Qaeda position. But somehow yep. there's always a bombing for an Iranian position, and they don't have to prove anything. They can just say it, and the media reports it, and that's that. And I just think to myself, not only not only has Israel not bombed Al Qaeda, they even treated Al Qaeda fighters and their soldiers and gave them paid their salaries uh, and gave them aid uh, when um, and when ISIS accidentally fired into Israel, they apologized. They yeah. apologized, to Israel, which shows which shows who's on the same side when it comes to Syria. 
Well, they admitted it as much. Um, I think back when Mehdi was on uh, uh, Al Jazeera, he was interviewing a, a former head of Mossad. And he, the guy was saying, yeah, we don't we don't care who, who the person is that we treat. Uh, you know, they just need help. So he says, OK, so you treat an Al Qaeda fighter. Of course. It, why not? And they says, All right, so would you treat a Hezbollah fighter? He's like, no, we would never do that. And it's like, okay, so <laughs> exactly. He literally said it like on, on air. And he was like, so you understand why people would call you a hypocrite? He's like, no, not at all. And it's like, this is this is insanity. And I, I got to be honest, man, before this earthquake, I was really looking forward to that, uh, that they taunt that Turkey and, and Syria were, were about to approach. Because yeah. I really wanted to see how this was going to play out. And now, I, I mean, I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know if that's going to happen now. I mean, I, I, I would imagine they would want to accelerate that. But, my God, I mean, to see – I don't know. I don't know where, where this goes from this point on. Even some of the analysts I follow are like, yeah, this is – the earthquake itself is, is a huge problem. So they're saying, like, the detente may not even happen for a while. But uh, – <sighs> It's very, it's very maddening. You know, there was an article on Syria in the New York Times this week, and I read it. It was late at night for me, but I was, it made me so mad. I had to do a long Twitter rant about it because it just was so upsetting. Um, the, um, it was by a guy named Declan Walsh. And uh, let me actually go through it a little bit because it's so unbelievably. probably never stepped one foot in Syria. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, if he did, he only went probably to like, you know, Al Qaeda controlled areas where, you know, his government is on that side. So, you know, but OK, so the article is called Syria's Assad uses disaster diplomacy to inch back onto a world stage. OK, uh, it's yeah. all about all oh, this evil Assad is going to take advantage of the earthquake to basically be treated as legitimate because, of course, because because the U.S. targeted him for regime change that makes him illegitimate. But because he's still there and this earthquake happened, now he's going to exploit this earthquake to make himself legitimate. That's the point of the article. So uh, this, this is what he says about the U.S. military occupation of Syria, okay? Um, he says, about 900 American troops remain in the country chasing the remnants of the Islamic State. <laughs> so, first of all, so first of all, like notice the passive voice. About 900 American troops remain in the country as if, oh, these American troops happen to be there and, you know, the, the, like they were there, you know, and, and, and they're still there. Like, like they remain, like, like they're sticking around. Yeah, no, the big deal. <laughs> they're militarily occupying one third of Syria and stealing its oil, which, of course, Declan Walsh can't mention. And then he says that they're there chasing the remnants of the Islamic State, right? which is just false. And I've written about this. I, I looked at the Pentagon's own studies, which showed that the U.S. troops are not doing any fighting at all against the Islamic State, except for maybe the occasional raid, where, by the way, they go and raid Idlib, which is controlled by al-Qaeda, where all these ISIS leaders happen to be. Funny how that happens, how you, the U.S. helps create this al-Qaeda safe haven by helping the al-Qaeda-led coalition capture Idlib, and then all of a sudden, all these ISIS leaders find a safe haven there. Um, but so... What they're actually doing is stealing the oil, which is what Trump said uh, the U.S. is doing and what Dana Struhl said the U.S. is doing, too. She's yep. a top Biden administration official. So so that's just straight up. So the way he portrays the U.S. military occupation is just they happen to be there. OK, yeah, they happen to be there. Uh, and he lies about what they're doing. there. They're not chasing ISIS at all. They're stealing Syria's oil and wheat, which is well, why which is a factor in why Syria couldn't respond to this earthquake because they don't have the, the fuel to power their vehicles. To help people, 
you know, uh, which of course he can't mention. Well, I mean, even Reuters said an article. I mean, it's like I, I think I was telling you last time um, when they accused the Syrian government of of blocking aid. You know, yeah. it's all over Assad regime. And then when the Al Qaeda group HTS and Reuters, to their credit, admitted and, and, and wrote in an article that HTS is blocking aid from getting into Idlib. Yeah. Then then a lot of outlets say, well, with internal fighting, we have problems. But to your point yeah. about uh, the ISIS fighters in Idlib, I mean, I think my favorite moment uh, was and I don't I don't go on. I'm not on Twitter or anything. I, I might like check it through the Web, but I personally can't I don't create a Twitter account. But I remember the funniest thing was when we first got we got the first leader of Baghdadi yeah. in, uh, in Idlib. But and I remember Charles uh, Leister and his brilliance was saying he tweeted out, oh, uh, I have to examine Idlib a little closer because but what's funny and what you'll see now is anytime they attack an ISIS leader in Idlib, they never say it's in Idlib. They never even say it's in rebel held Syria, as they like to, to proclaim. What they're very careful to do is they always say in every outlet it's in the western part of northern Syria. Right, of course. Because yes. if you say yeah. Idlib, then people would put two and two together and say, "Hold on, why is in why are ISIS leaders, you know, finding safety in 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 this quote unquote rebel held area?" And I yeah. mean, yeah. Like, I wish I could send you a picture, but I mean, I think it was telling you last last week if you checked the BBC like a week ago or something, in their own video they show the picture of how Syria is broken up, and they they do a diagram. They show government held area. U.S.-backed forces, Turkish-held area, and then on the left, jihadist-held area. But yet, okay, the, well, that's yeah, yeah, that's I, a rare acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah. I wish I can send you the. I screenshot the picture, but it was on the BBC. Um, here it is, the BBC Newsnight. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, if uh, I'll try to, I'll put, I'll, I'll send the link to the video and the uh, and message it to you on this one and tell you at the time frame so you can see it. But yeah, in that video, they show it. It says jihadist forces. And yet in the right. very next BBC video, it says Rebel Haldaria. And I just right. think to myself, you're the same network. How are you not communicating with each other about this? Yeah. But, yeah. Well, uh, one, 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 uh, one wing of the network got the memo and one didn't. But let me right. go on with Declan Walsh, okay? So then he says, uh, the Syrian economy has nosedived, strained by chronic food and fuel shortages. I wonder how the Syrian economy has nosedived and suffered from food and fuel shortages. Maybe that's because the U.S. has imposed on Syria the most crippling sanctions in the world, which, of course, he doesn't mention in, in connection with Syria's economy taking a nosedive. But you know who does mention that? His former officials mention it. So James Jeffrey, who's a former senior Trump administration official, he wrote in Foreign Affairs a few years ago um, that said that U.S. sanctions have, quote, crushed the country's economy through sanctions, okay? So th that's a case where U.S. officials are more honest than U.S. journalists are. Because Declan Walsh will say, oh, like the, the country's economy is in, taking a nosedive, there's food and fuel shortages. He won't connect that to the U.S. sanctions that are designed to achieve that outcome. But U.S. officials will acknowledge it. So we're in this surreal case where U.S. state officials are more honest than supposed free press journalists. It, it, it's amazing. And he goes on... Um, he says, uh, and, and speaking of Idlib, he says, um, in Syria, the magnitude uh, 7.8 earthquake and a powerful aftershock hit hardest in Idlib, the densely populated opposition-held province in the northwest. So he refers to, to al-Qaeda as the opposition when, again, there's another case where U.S. officials are more modest. 
uh, are more honest. What did Brett McGurk, who's now a top person under, under Biden, he called it the largest al-Qaeda, he called Idlib the largest al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11. So, I mean, there's other examples, too. I could go on, but it's just so dishonest the way these people report Syria. And uh, it's it's just straight, it's, it's straight up state propaganda. And it's... Um, and they're still getting away with it. It's it's unbelievable. Um, thank you, Sam, for the call. Sterling. Aaron. Okay. Yeah. So Saudi Arabia said that um, was it yesterday that they were going to be helping Syria. Did you see that? I haven't seen that. No. Yeah. It was. I was really really happy about that because this is one of the most disgusting things. It's like it just can't get crazier. I mean, can you, I, I just can't imagine kicking somebody down that down. And what was really weird last week, I saw this like promo ad as we like to do for ourselves, because we always have to be the freaking heroes um, about how the United States and Israel were like the first on the scene in Syria. And so, and then yesterday I'm like almost confused by it. I'm like, what do you mean you're bombing them? I mean, what in the hell is happening here? So yeah, it's just um Really interesting that also was yesterday or the day before when Jordan, did you see the statement they came out with? I did not. Okay. And it was just very clear. If Israel comes anywhere near us, it'll be war. So I don't know why they think. Uh, okay. I mean, it was, they, it based, no, no, no. That was a paraphrase. Um, uh -huh. They're very worried about Israel right now for some reason. They, and I was, that was the question I had for you. Why? I mean, why are they thinking that Israel now might be coming for them? I didn't see the statement, so I, I can't answer okay. the question. All right. So that's just something maybe you can Google, because I guess it's just going to get pretty crazy there right now, because I think Russia and China are such a distraction. That's my concern. Um, uh -huh. And China, oh, my gosh. And Blinken saying that the whole thing about, you know, how dare they with U.S. sovereignty? <laughs> I'm like, you've got to be kidding. I mean, we don't give a damn about anybody's sovereignty. So, yeah, that was a really weird um, thing. And then um, just really quickly ranting about um, just what Matt Taibbi has had to put up with on Twitter. I mean, I just can't believe. And he's so kind because he will actually answer these people that will say like horrible things to him. And the media, I've just never known or thought possible that America could have such a soulless media um, that would just sell out basically everybody, I guess, to make a name for themselves, because I, I just can't understand how you could just keep telling these lies over and over again. And it's just been so, so disappointing for real journalists. But thank God we have them. And most of them were at that rally today. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. It gave me a lot of hope. I hope it did other people. I think all the childish petty stuff that's going on on the left, hopefully will something will happen there. Everybody, I made a comment about, you know, when they, somebody with one of these podcast people was talking about um, everything but the rally and war today, they were having something. And I just commented, you know, it would have been nice if you could have grown up and maybe covered the rally. And because it is important. And but I guess everybody has a different view on whether, you know, the killing of other people is an important or a priority. Um, so, yeah, it's been a weird time. But that rally really gave me hope. And I hope it gave other people hope. Did it give you hope, Aaron? Yeah, it did. It did. I, I mean, I see. It's hard for me to feel hope, to be honest with you. Um, I know. And I don't. And the thing is, and the thing is also, I don't. Hope is sort of irrelevant to me because no matter what, I'll always do what I do because I just feel as if I, that's what I'm committed to, and I, I, I don't, I won't tether it to any kind of prospective outcome. But yeah, of course, when you see people 
getting together and spending their their Sunday yeah. uh, for a cause like this. It's uh, of, of course that's hopeful. Yeah, I thought it was beautiful, yeah. and I thought everybody did a really really nice job. Who was really surprising at how well they spoke? I thought was Anya. I had no idea she did a fantastic job. Um, I had I really have never heard, and I got a real kind of sixties throwback kind of feel from. Um, Gosh. Oh, Gerard Salente. He was fantastic. Um, it was just really, really good. I'm, unfortunately, I didn't get to see everybody, um, but it just looked like a really good vibe. And um, I was just so glad to see that. And I hope it's only the beginning of something good. And again, as always, Aaron, thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Aaron. Unmute. Yeah. Hey, Aaron. Hello. Back at you. I was Aaron way before you were, by the way. So, uh, yeah, I was, you know, at the rally today, one of dozens <laughs> with my kid. And uh, I just, I was at the 2003 rallies, you know, over by the UN in New York. And um, we're really like the oddballs now, aren't we? We're like the... I always, whenever you play like, or, you know, I see clips of Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, they're always like all the way on the other side, all by themselves, surrounded by empty seats. So it felt, felt a little like that, but, but, you know, it was, there was a lot of great people there. So it was, um, it was a good experience overall. And I, I went to the, um, Jimmy show. And I, I also just wanted to say it's Max. Max is a very talented, like he could be a stand-up comic, don't you think? You know, professionally. Uh, I agree. Uh, I agree. Guy's got, uh, guy's got stage presence. So, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. He's got, no, he's I, got I, timing. I, I, he's I, got timing. Yeah. He's, he's like, he's, very, <laughs> he's a very, um, you know, so if he gets sick of like grinding away with you after a while, maybe he's got a uh, shot at a second career. You, you, you can be a, um, you can be a, uh, uh, host of a uh, cable TV show and he, 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 um, he can do the standup. Sounds good. Sounds good to me. All right. And, um, yeah, last thing I wanted to just say is, um, the, um, you know, it's kind of pro whatever pro Russia, anti-war, blah, blah, blah. I, I think it's just like this natural human response. Like it's like when, you know, like in the fifties and the sixties when, people used to root against the Yankees, like, because it didn't matter if it was the Braves or the Cardinals or the Dodgers. You just, you know, you'd root for the Dodgers. And it wasn't because you wanted the Dodgers to, I mean, you wanted the Dodgers to win, I guess, but it wasn't because you loved the Dodgers. It was just because you hated the Yankees. And I think that's where a lot of this, that energy that, you know, could be interpreted as being pro-Russian comes from, from a lot of people. It's just, they just feel so negatively towards the war machine and NATO. Yeah. So I got you. I got you. Aaron, thank you for the call. Uh, okay. And thanks for the report. And thanks for the report back from the rally. Okay, uh Bert. I'm unmuted. How you doing? Good, good. I got your propaganda blast for the day. I was watching ESPN and there was a PSA for American Red Cross to send money for the Turkish earthquake. Not a single word about Syria. The Turkish earthquake. I was just flabbergasted. 
Yeah, it's amazing how uh, even in an earthquake, um, compassion doesn't extend to people who need it most. You know, the yeah. country that's, that lacks infrastructure because of a war that we were a part of and uh, just the inhumanity towards Syria is, uh, it blows my mind. It really does. I, I don't have words for it. Yeah, no, I tried to tell my wife about the sanctions, right? And she didn't believe it. She's like, there's no way that any, we can be that cruel. And that that just such, if you'll pardon the phrase, assholes. Um, secondly, one last thing before I go. Uh, you might want to check out Counterpunch. There's a bit by Jeffrey St. Clair in his Roaming Charges column that does give a little bit of a pushback to Cy Hirsch. I'm not going to go into details. Just take a look at it. It, it it's, does have a couple interesting things about who the source may be. So Yeah, okay. Honestly, I, I can confidently say I, I don't care about what Jeffrey said. Counterpunch, Counterpunch publishes some great stuff, but also sometimes they take a uh, hostile view toward, toward people like me. <laughs> and um, I don't take what they say seriously, to be honest with you. I just don't. But thank you for the call. Thank you. Okay. John. And it just, you know, listen, it's just, I, I have, a, like when it comes to Cy Hirsch, I have a bias. I'll admit it. I think he's the greatest reporter of all time. Um, I know him. And I just, I've seen all these efforts by people to take shots at him and like not even on the right, but from the left. And to me, it strikes me as being fueled by jealousy and just overall people not wanting to challenge the proxy war narrative for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not speaking to this specific critique and counterpunch, but there's been a lot of attempts to for people to undermine Hirsch's reporting. And I just, everything I've seen so far is not convincing. But admittedly, I'm very biased because I think we're talking about the greatest journalist of all time who I really trust. And I think has earned that trust from his years of reporting. But that's just me. Okay, John, go ahead. You have to unmute yourself. Uh, okay. And uh, John, the mute button is on your bottom left. It should be. Uh, there you go. Hello. Hi there. Okay, you can hear me. Yeah. Um, Good. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of in a bad location to be calling, but um, anyway, uh, I just uh, wanted to uh, call and say thank you for all the terrific work you've done on your own and with Katie and all that, because uh, you guys are uh, um, like a lifeline sometimes, you know, to keep me from going completely nuts. Um, but I've had a question that I wanted to put to you for a long time. It's kind of getting away from what people have been talking about, but it's about the possibility of um, drawing the, the Ukraine conflict, drawing to a conclusion, and there being some kind of referendum um, to see, you know, what what happens with Donbass and the uh, other regions of eastern Ukraine that Russia has basically taken over. Um, what circumstances do you think could possibly come into being where the United States would accept? a pro-Russian outcome from a referendum in those regions or referenda in those regions. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't think the U.S. would ever accept any kind of uh, outcome unless Russia forces it militarily. But I do agree. I think a referendum is a good idea. Um, have, have it again in Crimea and have it in the Donbass. See what mm. It's just, uh, I mean, because I just see, I'm a little bit more sympathetic than I was when the whole thing began towards the, the Putin end of the deal, you know, the, the, the Russian side. Um, yeah. I don't know if they did the right thing by, yeah, the, 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 strategy that, the strategy that they used to go into Ukraine was kind of over the top. They, do, they went from way more than the Donbass. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's really iffy whether they, they had legit cause to do all that. Um, yeah, no, again, I, I, I said I don't support Russia's invasion, but I also think right. Russia, I think Russia was hoping and was counting on Ukraine reaching a bargain uh, early on. Right. And that, there, were talks, there were talks very, very early oh, on yeah. in the first week. Naftali Bennett, his former Israeli prime minister, just talked to him. And um, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. he said there was a ceasefire reached and there were concessions made. That's what Russia was counting on. But they weren't counting on maybe the U.S. blocking. Yeah, I don't think they were expecting expecting this to go anywhere near this long, but yeah. here we are. Thank you, John, for the call. Okay, M, and we're going to move a little faster because we have limited time. Go ahead, M. Oh, hello. Am I there? Hi. Yeah. Hi. Oh, great. Um, so I'm not exactly sure if I've come in it. I kind of came in later, but I think my thing is, is I'm really like excited about the peace movement and the peace rally. I think it's a great beginning and, um, you know, it, everything isn't perfect in the beginning and it evolves into more perfection or more like growth of like, um, for the, the world. And, um, that's all I'm just, I'm like, I'm wearing my, I'm wearing my peace shirt that has a nice peace symbol on it. I'm 50 or will be 50 soon. I feel like I'm cheating when I say I'm 50, but I will be in June. And I think like the world is, um, moving to a more, um, like a sovereign and loving place where we're like, we can, we can argue or, um, like come to conflict in a more peaceful way where it doesn't have to do with like murder and hurting people and death and destruction and so much hate. Like you can hate somebody, but you can process through it without actually having physical hate manifest in, you know, in a physical being where you're just like tormenting people and torturing them. And I feel like that's where we're coming to in this world. And I just want to say that I love love. I love God. And um, and I think that everybody that listens to you and listens to Katie Helper and listens to the gray zone and listens to um, their heart and their soul are moving towards that change. I know it's, it's cheesy and no, stupid, hey, no, but hey, like, no, I'm, not, a, I'm no, a hippie I, at heart. Yeah, no, I was going to, you know, so am I. And um, I was, you know, I spend so much time 
sort of uh, being reactive and just calling out whatever lies and hypocrisy and injustice. So it's nice to hear some positive affirmations sometimes. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I, well, thank you. I'm sorry. Uh, I, uh, I already moved on to the next caller. So, but thank you for that call, Am. I appreciate it. Marco, go ahead. Uh, good, to, good to talk to you, Buzzsaw. I'm a big fan. Um, thank you. Something uh, that I learned about that I think I'd invite you to adopt that a lot of that that you probably are aware of is that in Eisenhower's first draft of his farewell address, he named the complex the military industrial congressional complex because Congress is essential to capitalism and the yeah. military. Um, so I think so every time I hear military industrial complex, I hear congressional complex because I know those bastards are part of it, part of it, too. But that's it. Uh, thanks. I'll take my comment up here. Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, thanks for the call. Uh, Michelle, go ahead. Hi. Hello. Hello. Do you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Aaron, I uh, got a question. I was in Syria three weeks ago and I was um, sort of surprised to see the, uh, the, the support from Assad. If you look at the pictures, which are kind of everywhere in Damascus, I'm not sure how far this is propaganda. But my, my question is actually, I see two stories coming around um, about Assad gassing his own people. One story is on one occasion or two occasions, it seems to have been fabricated by the West. Uh, and the other story is that, yes, he used chemical weapons. So what's your take on that? Did he use chemical weapons? And in what extent was this fabricated by the West, if at all? I don't think the Syrian government used chemical weapons. I think every time that allegation has been lodged, it's been shown to be a fraud. And the perpetrators have been shown to be uh, the sectarian death squads on the ground. In the case of Ghouta in 2013, I think they actually launched rockets with sarin, so there was an attack. In the case of something like Duma in 2018, I think they, they faked an attack, um, and all the evidence shows that. So when you have every single major case being shown to be a false flag, then how can you take seriously all the other allegations? And if you look at all the other allegations uh, investigated by the OPCW, there's, you see them relying on groups like the White Helmets, which, are, which work uh, very closely with the insurgents. So I just can't take any of those allegations uh, seriously. Uh, like when, when there's fraud, it just raises the, the – when there's documented fraud, the burden of proof becomes on people to show what, what is not fraud. And so far, that burden of proof has not been met. And just think about it. Just, you know, just forgetting all the evidence, all the leaks that have come out from the OPCW and from U.S. officials themselves. You, you can read about that in Cy Hirsch's reporting. Uh, when it comes to the OPCW, that's what I've covered. But just think about it logically. Why would Assad do the one thing that he knows would invite U.S. military intervention? As a former, there's an article by Charles Glass uh, in Harper's Magazine a few years ago, and one former U.S. ambassador said to him that Obama's red line was an open invitation to a false flag, because if you're an insurgent and you know that the one thing that could get the U.S. to intervene militarily on your side is for a chemical attack by Syria, then you're incentivized to frame Syria for a chemical attack. So why would uh -huh. Assad do the one thing he knows would invite U.S. military intervention? And also, why do all these chemical attacks that are blamed on Assad, how come they never hit the insurgents? They're always against innocent civilians. Uh, how come Assad didn't use chemical weapons when insurgents were taking 
entire towns from him, when they took an entire province of Idlib, where were the chemical weapons there? And they weren't there because Syria is not using its chemical weapons. Uh, it's the insurgents that are the ones using them, whether in real attacks like Ghouta 2013 or in staged attacks in 2018, where uh, I think what happened there is they used dead bodies as props to fake a chemical attack. I don't know how those people were killed. They might have been killed in a conventional Syrian government bombing. I personally doubt that. My guess is they were massacred by the insurgents who then used their bodies as props. But it's just logically, even if you don't look at the evidence, it makes no sense. Then once you look at the evidence, it's absolutely clear that these were false flags by death squads. These are, these are not um, moderate rebels as, we were, as they were built. These are um, hardcore sectarians who do things like put Alawites in cages like in Duma or put them in, in, in underground dungeons, dungeons where they have to dig tunnels and get tortured. I saw some of those tunnels when I was in Duma. So these are people totally capable of pulling off heinous crimes like this. And uh, I don't see any motive for why the Syrian government, even if it was diabolical enough to use chemical weapons on its own people, even just militarily, how that would possibly make sense. Okay. Hey, I love your work. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Um, we have limited time. And I see my friend Arlen in the queue, so I'm going to jump him ahead. I'm sorry to use my privilege, my friend privilege here, but I haven't talked to Arlen in a while. So Arlen, go ahead, and I'll get to as many others as I, as I can. Hello, Arlen. Uh, Arlen, if you are there, there's a mute button in the bottom left. And uh, if not, we will move on. Uh, and I'm and I will be humiliated for trying to bump up my friend. Okay, uh, and Arlen, if you hear this, you can jump back in the queue. Okay, Brady, go ahead. What's up? <sighs> How's it going? Uh, How's it going? Doing good, man. Um, I think personally, the best way to deflate the war balloon would be to apply the lessons of 9/11 to the Nord Stream pipeline and demand that there be diplomatic open debate before we ever send those Javelin missiles to Russia, before we ever allow that to happen, because that's the prelude to World War III. We're facing down the barrel of a gun. And one of the tools I've been using to fight back as well is ChatGPT, specifically the, the jailbroken version of it. I dropped the link in the chat for anyone who wants to try it out. And we've been asking it questions about political strategy, and we actually asked it to write a proposition to a peace proposition from the people of America to the people of Russia and Ukraine. It's a very rough version of it. It was like the first prompt on it, but we're trying to build on that and see how many, see if we can get a really good proposition put together from the, the people of America to the people of Russia and Ukraine and just say, hey, if we can, if y'all, if everyone will just stop fighting um, we will fix this. <laughs> we will repair the damage that's been done and we will investigate the uh, corruption that led to it as well. And um, we could use help on that project. So everyone, I encourage you guys to use Dan, uh, ask it questions, disclaimer, he will say discriminatory stuff if prompted. So. Okay. Thank you, Brady. Thanks for the call. Uh, Casey. Hi, Casey. If you're there, there is a mute button in the bottom left to unmute yourself. There you are. What's up, Mate? How's it going? Oh, thank you so much. 
for everything, honestly. And what I mean by everything is uh, truth, in fact. Um, journalism, real journalism. Um, so what I want to... Uh, oh, I'm now um, in awe of you. Sorry. Uh, so... I've lost my train of thought. Um, but uh, what should we do? Is it city by city now? Uh, city by city you, in, in terms of what? Uh, organizing. Because oh. this is fucking... Yeah. You mean about the war? About the Ukraine war? I mean about it all, Aaron. About it all? <laughs> That's a big about- question. I, no, yeah. we're fucked. So, yeah, yeah, do we yeah. go city by city? This is serious shit. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, that is a kind of question that uh, I can't answer for you, but uh, well, I appreciate the call. Tony, go ahead. Oh, hey, Aaron. I want to uh, touch on because these wars aren't going to end. I want to touch on uh, Taiwan and Haiti and what's going on there. Um, okay. Okay. And the natural reserves that are there, because that's basically what the U.S. is trying to grab. Uh, Haiti has the second largest untapped shale oil reserves and gas that hasn't been tapped yet. Uh, but they also have one of the world's largest iridium Id- uh, reserves in the world. Iridium's like one of the rarest materials. It's worth $6,000 per ounce. They make aircraft engines, uh, deep water pipelines, medical devices, electronic devices. But it's like critical for electronics and tele- telecommunication systems. And uh, in Taiwan, Taiwan has the uh, the TSMC, which is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which they make fifty like fifty three percent of the global semiconductor production market. And they also provide ninety two percent of all the advanced chips used in modern modern electronics in the world. So all the electronics, that's where all the chips are coming from. I don't know if uh, you ever realize this, but do you remember the Chips and Science Act that uh, Congress passed to, to help U.S. be able to make semiconductors in the future so China wouldn't have the market? Well, apparently there were hidden sanctions in there for the uh, to secure stable U.S. access to advanced semiconductors in the future and deny Chinese the same by restricting the export to China of equipment and designs necessary to develop and produce advanced microchips. So they're trying to stall China. All right, Tony, thank you for the call. And Sean. How's it going, Aaron? Um, Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, literally the world's on fire. And I think like our daily like rituals, just like yeah, it's, it's okay. I literally thought I saw a UFO once, and I I was, I was drunk at the point in time, but I laughed it off like it's twenty twenty. Funny story, but the question I have is actually kind of more um, pointed directly to your nature as a journalist because of the fact I've realized that there is an inherent problem would it come to like the communications of people and would it actually like what we're talking about, when we're talking about communicating information because on so many issues, people 
look to their information as accurate correct due to the subjective nature of agreement with that information. And it makes any like actual process of humanity evolving or changing or getting to any like actual better point, honestly, to my perspective, impossible. And I would, I don't know. I was just kind of wondering if you had any thoughts about that as a journalist, because I think that's probably one of the basic natures of the things that probably drives you nuts. And it's one of the things that just like as a normal person, I think is literally the unsurmountable condition that as a species will probably lead to our extinction. So yeah, fun comments. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, but yeah. Well, look, it is interesting that the smartest species on the planet, supposedly humans is also the, the species that is designed the means for its destruction. And Chomsky talks about the dilemma. Is it better to be smart or stupid? as a species and the human species is proving that it's right now, at least it's better to be stupid because what have we done with our so-called smarts is we built the means to destroy ourselves. But I don't think there's anything inherent about human nature. I think there are different facets of it. And I think what aspects of it come out depend on what kind of conditions they're in. And the task for those of us who want to see human species survive is to try to build the best conditions we can. And I don't take any kind of fatalistic approach, but, our species, because I don't know. And regardless, even even if we are bound to self-destruct, I still would like to do what I can to help avoid that. You know, so that's how I approach that issue. Yeah, I I, I think that's good. I'm not I'm not I I believe in God, so I'm a little bit weird, but I also love science. So I'm I'm in a very weird position. Most people on the left don't it. get me. You know what I mean? <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> I hear you. Well, hey, uh, you're you're not alone in that. You're not alone in that. Thank you for the call. Uh, okay. Square coats. Uh, Hi there. I just quickly, I was, I haven't read the counterpart punch article. I don't know if I'm going to, but um, I've just been thinking, like, I have some of my own thoughts here and there about, like, oh, who could be the whistleblower or whistleblowers? But I think that it's better for people not to speculate about that, like, publicly, because there's no need to, like, out a whistleblower who shared some useful information. Just wonder if you have thoughts on that. Or, yeah. Um, well, also, yeah. Also, because also, because well, yeah, I know, and also because people have no idea. People, I mean, it, like, it's so easy when you know to look at some open source information and think you know something. But uh, I mean, there's a reason Cy Hirsch is who he is. He's been doing this for decades, for more than half a century. Um, and so I just think for when people like who don't have anywhere near his journalistic credentials try to come along and undermine them. I just, I, 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 you know, they can spend their time doing that if they want to, but I don't feel that I have to pay attention to it. Yeah. Um, I, and thank you for like the call. That. Oh, okay. Hello. Okay. Or yes, Arash K. Go oh, ahead. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Um, I, I got on the, on your show a little late. I want to see, uh, if you have any comment on the, um, you know, the tank deal in which uh, America kind of forced Germany to give the tanks and then it kind of backed out of its own, is there any public outrage you think in Germany over this? Because I haven't seen anything. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, you know, U.S. got Germany to send tanks, put it out there basically in the front on like the line of fire, and then uh, said, oh, yeah, we're not going to be able to send our tanks for a couple of years. And also, meanwhile, most other countries in Europe did the same thing. 
So Germany got screwed yet again. And then that was followed up by the news that the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream 2. And the fact that German politicians, leaders are not speaking out, says to me that they're either complete cowards or they've been co-opted somehow. Because I don't understand why they, they keep letting their own country be humiliated and undermined. Because I did hear that uh, Annalena Baerbock and Schultz aren't talking. Is there like kind of a division? Because she's a real like kind of almost neocon from the Green Party. <laughs> yeah, and but, but uh, I believe that if, if Schultz wasn't such, I mean, like what has Schultz done to distinguish himself from Baerbock? He, he stood by Biden as Biden said that no matter what happens, if we want to, we'll stop Nord Stream 2. He didn't say anything. He didn't, he didn't protest. He didn't uh, say that Biden mind him. So he's weak. And so I don't see a huge difference between him and Barabach. But I, I, I really look forward to seeing what happens in Germany because it's, it's fascinating. Okay, last caller will be William. Go ahead. How you doing, Aaron? Can you hear me okay? Hello? Yes. Okay, real quick. Our government pays the media to propagandize us under the Smith-Munt Modernization Act of 2012. Lifted the ban on domestic propaganda, the Smith-Munt Act of 1948. So Obama signed that, Aaron. It's M-U-N as in Nancy, D as in David T, the Smith-Munt Modernization Act of 2012. Check it out, and you'll see State Department pays legacy media, and that's how they're staying afloat, because it's people like you and Jimmy Dewar that take in their market. You see? So Yeah, I don't... I, yeah, I don't think that actually the um, the private media is surviving off of state money. Um, they're surviving because the corporate media system works so well that it's owned by the corporations that own the country, and therefore it's going to reflect the perspectives of the owners. So I don't think they need anyone from the government to tell them what to say. Uh, they just do it anyway because it's in their it's in, it's in the interest of how the media is set up. But uh, it never ceases to, you know, I I just commented on Twitter about this article in the Washington Post that said Mm -hmm. um, it was talking about some protesters in Germany and it's, you know, who were protesting the Munich Security Conference and uh, were protesting NATO. And the Washington Post said the protesters were fueled by Russian propaganda. (laughs) And that's just like that's exactly what a U.S. state media outlet would say. But the beauty of the U.S. is if you want to be a state propagandist, you get to be a state propagandist. But you get paid by the private sector. So, so, you know, like like you probably get a higher salary than you would if you work for the government. So it's a great gig if you're interested in state propaganda. And it works well, very well because people don't think that the private media is is actually owned by the state. Uh, well, we got to leave it there because i got to go. Okay. Um, so thank you for the call. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. And I will see you next time. Have a great rest of your weekend.